If you have Hebrews 7, would you stand please? And we'll read together God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7. If you're a guest here with us today, we're glad you're here. This is typically what we do. We sing together for a little bit and we'll pray and then we'll open the Bible. And just really the next half hour or so will feel a lot like a Bible study. Now today's a little different. We're going to use this passage to point us to the Lord's Supper. We are right in the middle of Hebrews. We've been studying it since January. Hebrews chapter 7, the writer has pointed us to an Old Testament character named Melchizedek, which actually is, a, is an example, a type that points to Christ. We'll pick up in verse 11, and uh, you'll, you'll catch on as you go along. Verse 11, we'll start there and read down to verse 19. Grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let's ask the Lord now to draw near to us. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you for the men and women you've sent here today. For many of them sitting in this room, it has been a tumultuous, even painful week. God, I pray that by your Spirit you would minister to their hearts, that you would, that you would heal wounds, take away the darkness of depression, that you would remove anxiety, that you would forgive sins, that you would bring back the joy of our salvation, we ask today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I can pray that prayer because today is one of the great days, one of the great remembrances. When the church gathers together, and we remember why it is so good to actually be in Christ. Today we'll take the Lord's Supper, something that Christians have done together for 2,000 years almost. We'll take the Lord's Supper and we will be reminded of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and why it is so glorious to be loved by God in Christ. And this passage that I've read this morning, this passage is a great reminder 
of the tremendous benefits of actually being a born-again Christian. For context, we're right in the middle of Hebrews chapter 7. This book, little book, Hebrews, is written by a pastor to his congregation. They are under persecution, and he's writing to encourage them to remain faithful. Here in chapter 7, the preacher is trying to convince his people to stay faithful to the good grace of God found in Jesus. And the way he does it in chapter 7 is that he pulls an Old Testament figure out of the book of Genesis and Psalms, a man named Melchizedek, and he uses Melchizedek to show us the excellencies of Christ. You see, many of us sitting right here are in the same danger that the first century Christians were in. There are many women sitting here that would claim they're Christians and yet are loosening their grip. There are many here that would claim to be Christians and yet your love for God has grown cold. There are many people here that have claiming to be Christians. You feel like you are, but you're losing your, you're losing your sense of God's grace in your life. And this passage is laid before us to point us through Melchizedek onto Christ. And what this preacher says is, if you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. And before we take the Lord's Supper today, before we have the elements of bread and wine, or the bread and the juice, I want to use this passage to convince you that now and forever, Christ is everything. I want to center your life. That's what the Lord's Supper does. Centers our, I want to center your life on the cross of Jesus so that you can just meditate with me that now and forever, Christ is everything. Without Christ, there is nothing. I'll tell you what, let's do. Let's go to the passage and look at the beautiful and great benefits of being in Christ. Now, before I give you the sermon, so a lot of you download the outline. You can do that on the app or you can find it on the website, and you see that it is a six-point sermon. I have six points. I worked hard all week, studied, and what I normally do is, is get the outline together and then sit down on Saturday afternoon from 2 to about supper time and write out the manuscript. So I started writing last night on point one, and it was the entire sermon. So we're going to be really deep into point one. You're going to be looking at your watch and think, now, this is just the first point. He got five more points. This is a three-hour sermon. Now, we'll get to the end. I'll give you the last five, but this first one struck me so hard, and I hope it will you as well, that in Christ, here's the first point, verse 11 and 12, in Christ, you can know God. The great beauty of Christianity is that when you are in Christ, you can actually know, not know about God, not a philosophy, not a set of beliefs. There is a person you can know God. Go with me there to verse 11 and 12. Let's just go through it and uh, talk about some of it right there. Verse 11, let me read it with some comment. 
the, the writer says, now, if perfection had been attainable, Paul's there. What does he mean, perfection? If the closeness to God that Adam and Eve had in the garden, it was perfect before sin came in. Before the fall, Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in genuine fellowship. It was perfect. All of that was lost when sin entered in, and since then we have been away from God, imperfect, the world we live in, imperfect. And the preacher says, if perfection, if that closeness could have been attained through, verse 11, look at it, through the Levitical priesthood, God created for his people a way for them to, to hear from him through the, the Levitical priesthood and the Old Testament law. Go and read Genesis, then Exodus as it came out of Egypt, and there wandering with the tabernacle, God would meet with his people in Exodus, the Ten Commandments, and the law of God. That was there for the people, but it couldn't make them perfect. And so this is what this preacher's saying to people that want to go back to Judaism. Don't you know? that if the Levitical priesthood could have helped people be close to God, verse 11 and 12, there would not have been any need for another priest. You see it? If the perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one that they already have? Verse 12. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. In other words, if you could have been saved by the sacrificial system, if you could have been saved by keeping the Ten Commandments and being a really good person, if you could just for one hour have been perfect, there would have been no need for Christ. You see, his perfect life, this is Christianity right here, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection. If you being good were enough, or if you actually were already a pretty good person, you just sometimes mess up. If you really, we do this all the time, we talk about someone, we, you know, he's, I mean, he, he does some bad things, but he's actually pretty good. He got a good heart. No, he doesn't. You know, nobody has a good heart. The heart is deceptively wicked. The Bible says. It's not your heart that, don't say you gave your heart to Jesus. Jesus doesn't receive your heart. He gives you a new heart. That's conversion right there. So let's talk. I'm getting, um, I got too much. Y'all got me worked up. I got myself worked up. See, here's what the preacher is saying. If you go back there, if you go back, you're going to miss out on all the good that Christ has given. If, if works were enough, then grace wouldn't be necessary. Verse 11, look at it. Verse 11, if salvation could be attained through the Levitical priesthood, if it could be reached by the law, if God's law were enough, if you just obeying the rules and being a good person, if that were enough, there would be no need for Christ. You see, none of that, the preacher saying, None of that, none of that is enough to make you perfect. You see, you can't know God. You can't have access to God through anything but Christ. 
You can't know God through religion. You might be a very religious person. You can't actually know God through your religion. You can't know God through nature. You, you, can, you can know about God. Romans 1 says you can know that there is a God, but you can't know God through nature. You can't know God through some sort of relaxation technique. You can't know God through you concentrating or sitting in quietness or, or meditating, emptying your mind. Your mind doesn't need to be emptied. It needs to be filled up with God's Word. That's what meditation is. You can't know God uh, from just some sort of... You can't know God from yoga. You certainly can't know Him from hot yoga, whatever that is. You can't know him from just going on vacation, getting away from The preacher's saying, if you leave here, here's what the author is doing. He's setting up the superiority of Christ over against everything else that tempts people. He's setting it up against the, the entire Jewish system. He's saying, you came out of Judaism, out of law, and out of, out of the sacrificial system, and he's doing this because the people that got this the first time they were tempted into fading back into the woodwork because Christianity was illegal, Judaism was not, they came out of Judaism, wait, we're being persecuted, let's ease back into it, going back to their old ways. And he's telling them, now you might live, but if you go back there, if you don't have Christ, you do not know God. Now, now look what he's saying. <clears throat> I want to be careful here. Um, I need to thread the needle, which I'm typically uh, I'm not very good at that. I'm more of a bull in the china shop. But let's thread the needle here. He's not saying that the law of God is not good. It is good. We, we don't need to unhitch. I heard one preacher say, saw it written, unhitch from the Old Testament. Or, or one denomination has the Old Testament as a historical reference. No, it is God's Word and it is God's law, and it is good. Even Jesus would say, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. So then, how, how is the Old Testament useful? How is the law of God useful? Let me give you several ways to think about it. The law of God is useful because it reflects the righteousness that God expects. The law of God reflects God's righteousness. Not only that, the law of God restrains evil. I read the commandment that says, thou shalt not steal. I see something I want, I don't take it because that commandment is restraining me. The law of God restrains evil. The law of God, number three, reveals God's will. We want to know what does God expect out of his people? The law of God tells us this is what God expects. The law of God, the law of God enhances my awareness of evil. I know something is sin because the law of God tells me. The law of God helps me see my spiritual deadness. I see the Ten Commandments. I can't keep them. I know I am dead inside. I need help. It points me to Christ. The law of God shows us our need for atonement. I mean, think about the entire sacrificial system. The whole sacrificial system is nothing more than a type that tells us in order to be close to God, blood must be shed. The law of God, Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law of God is a tutor. It leads me to Christ. Really, there are lots of things that the law of God does 
do, but there are several things that the law of God can't do. You go and you try to keep the Ten Commandments, you try to keep all. What is it that the law of God can't do? I mean, certainly this is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 8. Do you know Romans chapter 8? Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and memorize that. Get the whole chapter, internalize that. Romans chapter 8, Paul says that God has done what the law, God has done what the law that's been weakened by the flesh couldn't do. What can't the law do? The law doesn't make you new inside. You try to keep the law, you try to keep God's law, you try to be a religious person, you had not been changed, you feel dead. The law can't make you new inside. The law, the law of God, doesn't actually forgive sins. You're condemned by it. You read it and you think, I can't keep that. The law doesn't forgive sin. The law of God doesn't provide access to God. Doesn't get us there. Doesn't, doesn't bring us into the presence of God. The law of God doesn't transform. You can read the Bible all you want, but if something hasn't happened in your life, then the law of God doesn't change you, doesn't transform you. The law of God doesn't bring about a new birth where you're a changed person. The law of God doesn't take what is dead. This is why religion is so hard if you're not a Christian. If you're trying to be, and yet the Holy Spirit hasn't gripped your heart, it's impossible. The law of God doesn't take what is dead and make it alive. And if all you have is religion, it is dreadful. Look, if all you have is religion, you are still dead in your sins. It, or, or you came in today and you said, well, I, I believe in God. If all you have is that, you are still dead in your sins. You see, when the writer uses, in verse 11, when he uses the word perfection, what he means is this complete access to God. And he is the only one who can give you that. You know who can give you that? It is the priest who is in the order of Melchizedek. Go back with me to the scene. You remember it well, I'm sure. Jesus on the cross, there as he breathes his last. You, you remember what the writer tells us. What the gospel writer says, that when he breathes his, it is finished. Access is open from top to bottom. The veil is torn in the Holy of Holies, symbolizing now you can come freely. The law of God can't do that. Only the priest in the order of Melchizedek, who is Jesus Christ, only Christ is the final and satisfactory offering to God that makes it so that you can. The great Puritan, John Owen, great Puritan, I can't read, he has like, like 13 volumes on the book of Hebrews. So you think I'm taking a long time getting through it? He took forever to get through it. So I'm reading some of what he's written this week. And he had several things to talk about this perfection. What does it mean to be perfect in Christ? He had a lot. To, I'll just give you three of them. What is this that Christ has done? The first one is that he brings, he brings us righteousness. Today, when you take the Lord's Supper and you eat the bread and you, you drink the juice, you're reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus that was paid. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that for our sake, for your sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in Christ you might become the righteousness of God. 
The Lord's Supper, when we take that, we are reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus. Not only that, this perfection means that, that he brings us perfect peace. Perfect peace. Let me give you a peace chain. Go with me quickly. A couple of links. What does it mean to have peace? Romans chapter 5, verse 10 tells us that when, when we were enemies with God, he reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. We now have peace with God. Therefore, second link, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, therefore Christ becomes our prince of peace. And if that's the case, because, why is he our prince of peace? Because Colossians 1.20 tells us that he has made peace through the blood of his cross and the result, last link, the result is Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? You can live with, with peace with God, peace with each other because of the cross. You know what brings people together? You know how we have unity? It is the cross of Jesus where peace has been declared, peace with God and peace with one another. That's righteousness and peace. And John Owen says that he also, this perfection, being in Christ brings us joy, great joy. Isn't that what Romans chapter 4, verse 7 says? That the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter, that the Christian has joy unspeakable and full of glory. Look, that's what we celebrate today. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that the joy of the Lord is your strength. That you can have peace when you're sitting in trouble. You can have refreshment in your soul when you're weary. You can be able to have a smile on your face and delight in tribulation that you can stand in the middle of an emergency and have strength, that you can ride through a crisis and have patience. And verse 12 tells us why. Go, go with me to verse 12. What has happened to make all of this possible? Verse 12. For when there is a change, that's circle that word, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Change. That word change is an important word here in the text. It means to, to put one thing in the place of another. So in other words, when I go to my house, uh, I live in an old house and air conditioned. Man, the, the filter is in a closet down the end of a hallway, so it sucks every bit of nasty dust and everything else into it and have to change it a lot. And when I go to change that air filter, I don't take it out, shake it off, and put the same one back. I take that one out, throw it away, change, and get a brand new one. What the preacher is saying here is that we've not made improvements. We've taken an old system, pulled it out. There's been a change, verse 12. There's a change in the priesthood, and there's a change in the law. It means, here's what God has done now. This is how radical it is. He's talking to people that are thinking about going back to Judaism. He's preaching to a church made up of former Jews that are thinking about leaving Christianity. And he's saying to them, 
Now, you think Judaism and Christianity are so closely connected, and they are, but the danger is that we think, the danger is that we think that Christianity is just a better form of Judaism. In one sense, Christianity came out of Judaism, but Judaism, Christianity is not just an improved and expanded. What this guy is saying and what inspired by the Holy Spirit, what the Bible is telling us that there's something old, an old system is gone. We call it the new covenant. And a new has come. That's why in Christ all things are made new. It's why, it's why I can't in good conscience, if I'm invited to participate in an interfaith, some sort of service where Judaism and Islam and Christianity and Buddhism come together and find unity. The problem we have there is that there's nothing for us to unify around. What we unify, what I can unify around, is the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus that is the only way to save sinners from hell. And that's what the preacher's saying. If you leave, if you leave here, then there's nothing for you out there, is what the preacher says. There's, there's nothing but Christ and Him crucified, raised from the dead, reigning as Lord, and that being, the Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and men. It's the man, Christ Jesus. Now, this is why I took so long on this point. That in Christ and only in Christ can you know God. When I, when I say know God, I mean the gospel. The gospel of God is like this. God is the holy creator who created all of us in his image. You have dignity because God created you in his image. But that image of God in you is disfigured because of your sin. Your sin is not just bad decisions. Your sin is actually an offense to a holy God who is also a just God. And because of that, he must punish sin. The punishment is too great for you. But God is not just just, he is also loving and kind. And in his love, God sent forth his son, Jesus, who is all God and all man. Jesus lived perfectly under the law, fulfilled it, because we can't. Fulfilled the law, earning righteousness. And at the cross, there's a great exchange that happens. He becomes sin. He takes your sin. Here, look, you got guilt, go to Jesus. He takes that sin and gives you righteousness and the way that becomes yours is that you turn and believe. And this preacher's saying, if you leave this wonderful offer of grace, there's nothing for you. You see, verse 11 and 12, in Christ, you can know God. Let me show you something else. We'll fly through it quickly. Also in verse 13 and 14, in Christ, you can trust God. In verse 13 and 14, we're introduced to something else. We know him as the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 13 and 14, the writer says, Now wait, you know Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the same one David is from. That's the kingly line. But he's not only priest, he's also king. And as king, he is sovereign over all. And you can entrust your life to Christ. In Christ, you can trust God. Verse 15 tells us that in Christ you actually, you can actually experience God. You can experience God. 
that God is not some far-off concept, that in Christ He is actually your Father. It's a beautiful verse, verse 15 is. This becomes even more evident when another, I love that word, another, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Another priest. There are two words for another in the Greek language. The first one is alon, A-L-L-O-N. That means another just like it. So, so if I'm eating a really good chocolate chip cookie, and I ate that cookie, and it was so good, I want another just like that. That's the word alon. The second word for another in the Greek language is the word hetero. That word means another that is completely different. That's the word here. And what the preacher is saying is there has been another. That Christ has come and he is completely different. Verse 15, and he is arisen. That word, he arises. That's the incarnation. That's Jesus becoming man. That is the perfect life of Jesus. That is the death of Jesus on the cross. Here's the resurrection of Jesus arising. This is why we baptize people in that big pool. Why? Not because it saves them, but because it's a reminder. You have arisen from the dead. In Christ, you can experience God. In Christ, when you get to verse 16, in Christ, you can actually live for God. What a beautiful verse, verse 16. It has the word indestructible. Nowhere else in the Bible in verse 16. It talks about Jesus as the priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Nowhere else in the entire Bible do you see that word. The resurrected Jesus. You, you don't have an indestructible life. This is why you can be diagnosed with cancer and still have joy. This is why you can get arthritis and hurt and still thank God. Not because your body's not indestructible, Christ is. Because our faith is in Jesus as the forerunner. This is why, this is why you can grow old and still be happy looking forward to that day because Christ has gone on before you. In Christ, you can live for God. In Christ, verse 17, you can hear from God. He quotes the Bible. We don't hear from God through visions or dreams. We hear from God through His Word. In Christ, I'll see if I can close with this. In Christ, you can actually see God. Verse 18 and 19, it's where it's all been going. Drawing near. Through Christ, there's a better hope by whom we draw near to God. And today, we... We remind ourselves and center our lives on the cross of Jesus. It's the body and the blood of Christ drawing us near to God. And today we remember the body and blood of Jesus that brings us near. Now in a moment we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare our hearts for that, I'd like to just go into an attitude of prayer. Will you join me then? your heads bowed this morning as we go into a moment of prayer before we take the Lord's Supper. With your heads bowed this morning, just think with me. Just a few more minutes. Just think with me. Here's the first question. Do you, do you know God? You, you personally, where you are. Have you given your life to Christ and there's evidence of that? Do you know God? 
Most of you here, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to ask you, do you actually trust God? Have you come off a week of complaining? It's been a hard week, maybe even a hurtful week, and you haven't trusted. You need to maybe even this morning just repent of that and say to the Lord where you're sitting, Lord, I want to trust you. Have you experienced God? Here's what I mean. Have have you been born again by the Spirit? You are awakened to your sin. You turn from it and put your faith in Jesus. And there's, there's evidence that you are bearing fruit, that your life gives evidence that something's happened. This week, have you lived for God? If we were to stop and, and look back over the week from Monday up to yesterday, and we were to take inventory of that week, could, could you say, I lived my life for God this week? Have you heard from God? I don't mean in a vision or a dream. I mean, has his word taken root in your heart and given you strength and hope? Will you, will you one day see God? If you died before you left this sanctuary, is there an assurance of your own salvation that you are in Christ? Father, the name of Jesus pray that you would help us. Pray that today as we take the Lord's Supper, you will honor that, that hearts might be centered on Jesus, that we might feel the full force of your love and forgiveness. And so help us now in Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to take the elements, and I would open the wafer part first on the bottom. Go ahead and pull it out. And once you have that done, you may want to turn it over and open the top where the juice is very carefully. As you're doing that, we'll talk about who should take the Lord's Supper today. The Lord's Supper is a practice for Christians. It is a reminder of brothers and sisters in Christ. We have communion with God and communion with one another. So that if you are not in Christ, you've not given your life to Christ, this is a good, tangible way for you to to not take the Lord's Supper and then maybe after talk to one of us, one of the pastors, about what it means to give your life to Christ. You have a small child that's not been baptized yet and not given his or her life to Christ. Use this as an opportunity to share the gospel. If you're here this morning as a Christian and yet you are living in some kind of sin, it's unrepentant, you've not dealt with it, or there's a broken relationship, it's best that you don't take the Lord's Supper until after reconciliation and you've dealt with the issue. This is a reminder. We have fellowship based on the body and the blood of Jesus. Because on the night when he was betrayed, the Bible says that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take strength. Brother and sister, take strength in the body of 
Jesus. The body that was wounded, mortified, decayed, and raised for you. The Bible says that in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's the juice symbolizing the blood of Jesus that without the blood of Christ there is no forgiveness of sins and yet your sins are forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for you. Guilt is taken away. You can walk into this week with a clear conscience. Now there's some of you here you were not able to take the Lord's Supper. When we sing in a few moments it might be good to come and talk to one of our pastors at the end of the aisle or, or after church out in the lobby. Let's talk about why you couldn't take the Lord's Supper. For those of you that could take the Lord's Supper, this is a, a realignment. Your heart has been set and you're reminded of God's love for you in Christ. We're going to sing this last song and as we do, I want you to sing it with all of your heart as one who has great confidence and assurance in the love of God found in Jesus. Do you join me as we pray? We'll sing our last worship song. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to strengthen us. Lord, many of us will, will face unknown and untold struggles this week. We need help. We need strength. We need grace and patience. We need the Holy Spirit to carry us. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus for the body and the blood of Christ. And we celebrate and joyfully sing of that forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would empower us to live for Christ this week. Be honored in the men and women of Hickory Grove as we walk out of here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together.